Welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. I'm Andrew. And uh, with us today, we have James Sparks. So uh, Andrew and I can try and rattle this off and flub our way through it, but we're going to let James give his credentials and then we're going to talk to him for a little while. Hey guys, how y'all doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, Basically, name's James Sparks. I have an undergraduate degree from criminal justice. Uh, I also have a master's degree in criminal justice. I guess I've been involved with the criminal justice system since I graduated uh, with an undergraduate degree. I uh, completed that in Kentucky, and then I went on to get my master's degree at the University of Alabama. Prior to going to the University of Alabama, I guess this is where it starts, I had the opportunity and I started corresponding with John Wayne Gacy. And as a result of that, that led to me writing my master's thesis on Gacy, which led to a lot of opportunities after that to get published in uh, textbooks regarding the serial murder information. Uh, I've been teaching a serial homicide class for 17 years now. I teach a U.S.-based serial murder class, and then I teach an international studies-based class. I also have a job where I work in uh, the juvenile justice system, and I've been doing that for over 20 years now. My first and foremost love is actually the teaching component, being an adjunct professor, uh, where I, like I mentioned before, teach the serial murder classes, which are pretty much always full. We're taking a break this summer. We're going to start back in the fall. Been teaching those for 17 years. And um, it's one of those topics, you know, that everyone seems to have the interest in. It's one of those topics that, in a sense, have never died since I've been teaching the class. Right. It never will. Yeah, never I don't will. think it. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you cover in your serial homicide class? Sure. We basically, like I said, we touch on an American-based class, and I have an international-based class. And what we do is we do the basics, the typologies of serial killers. We talk about uh, different profiles. We talk about nature versus nurture. We talk about life histories. We talk about just the uh, surroundings that go on with these killers, what they're exposed to, and how they can just sort of, you know, ingratiate themselves with everyone in everyday life. And that's what I always tell my students. And, you know, something I mentioned, I think, Andrew, is you know, for the past several years, about 95% of my class has been female. And on the first class, what I do is I do a little um, test of the students. And what it is, is it's called serial killer a person or mass murder. And what I do is I have a slideshow of all these various serial killers and mass murders and everyday people and ask them if they can identify the serial killers. And just because I have a... uh, complete disdain for televangelist. All my people generally are televangelists on TV. <laughs> and you would be amazed and surprised to see. I don't, I don't think I would. <laughs> how many of the students actually call the televangelists serial killers or mass murderers? Yeah, not surprising at all. Um, <laughs> so just just real quick, one thing that that is brought up to me a lot is the nature versus nurture argument. And um, you can tell me if you agree with me or disagree me or go into more. I mean, it's it's more important what you say with you being the professional here. But I usually describe it as it could be one, 
the other or a combination of the two? You know, I actually agree. I think it's a combination of both. One of the questions that I tend to ask the students these days is, do you believe that there's such a thing as being born bad? And uh, as, we, as we have progressed over the years, you would be amazed at how many students actually raise their hand and say, yes, I believe people are born bad. Uh, and then we get in, you know, to all the demographics, all the uh, home life and what have you. And I think a lot of times uh, whenever the students hear about the, the backgrounds, when they hear about the victim count, that's when they tend to be leading towards more of the born bad. Uh, and it's just amazing today that how many of them say, yes, people are actually born bad. Uh, one of the things that I talk to students about, and this is something that a serial killer from Florida told me, and uh, he's recently, or he's not recently, but he's executed David Gore. You're probably familiar with David Gore. Yeah. You know, it was a team killer of Fred Waterfield. And David told me, he says, you know, I love killing. He said, that was one thing I like to do. And he said, I never failed to get a victim. So I said, well, how do you get a victim? And he says, I've got a full proof way to get a victim. And so what I would do is he always had, I would always pull up in my van and you know, the van I'm talking about, the serial killer van, no windows, you know, just a regular like yep. work van. And he said, I'd pull into a neighborhood and I would open up the door and inside the van, I would have a box of puppies. And he said, no girl, no woman, no child could ever turn down coming in my van and petting a, uh, a puppy. And he said, as soon as they got in the van, he said, I would usually hit them in the head with a hammer, shut the door and be on my way. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I don't think we'll ever really know the true answer in regards to nature versus nurture. Uh, because as we start reading about these guys, especially these new cases, and even some of the, bat, the, 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 the you know, historical cases, it seems to be a combination of both. And then you get into different sorts of killers. You know, look at the... Todd Colip, he's yeah, in a sense both, of hybrid. Yeah, both. Yeah, exactly. I brought that up on another podcast. Is that um, because because I don't correspond much with them anymore. But uh, I I said I would if you know one came along that was worth it. And I and I brought Todd Colhep up actually exactly as you are right now. And I was like, he's distinguishable because he is both a mass murder and a serial killer. And Absolutely. that's extremely rare. And people, I mean, th that kind of flew under the radar because you really have to, you kind of got to be nerds about it like we are to really acknowledge that kind of thing. The general public, it, you know, they're not so familiar with the the typology and the labels. And and uh, yeah, he's he definitely stands out. And Chris, the one thing that stood out about that is no one had a clue. Law enforcement didn't have a clue. They had no idea who to look for until he gets arrested, they get him in a room and he starts talking. He's like, oh, by the way, I did this, I did that, you know? And they were blown away. They right. had this guy, it was a twofer for them. Yeah. You know, they got him on this serial murder and all of a sudden they found out, oh God, he's the one responsible for this mass murder, this bicycle shop. Had he, had he kept his mouth shut, that would still be an open case. It's it's interesting because that, that case went cold for so long, but that was his most unorganized crime that we are aware of and and that's another thing is that you see both organized and disorganized uh type with him and it, i mean it's just i don't i don't know if i want to call it a a progression you know when you look at the the mass murder um it was very disorganized as opposed to a more organized 
way in how he conducted his his serial murders. Um, the the, the sec- about, right? yeah, the bike killing was was disorganized as compared to yes. the the sexual serial murders. But you see that, and you also see with mass murders that it's becoming less of a a burst of violent rage, and it's becoming more tactical. There's more planning. There's uh there's more efficient weaponry, things like that. So I, I think there there is a criminal evolution here and 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 i think i i personally think they are evolving whereas you know a lot of people who pay attention to the media would think that you know mass murders are becoming more prevalent and serial killers are going to the wayside i don't think that's the case how do you feel about all that no i don't think that's the case either i think it's just uh society that's opening the doors uh wider for people to you know gather information to do the research uh I do think that when we look at the serial killers or mass murderers, I really believe uh, in more of the mixed typologies, the organized and disorganized sort of combined. And, you know, Mr. Wrestler mentioned that years ago that he said there was such a thing as a mixed typology. And I think that we're seeing that more. Uh, But, you know, there are so many people out there that whether they are just malignant narcissists or what have you, they feel like they've got to be recognized or known. And, you know, I've, I've even had really weird experiences in classrooms. Years ago, I was teaching the class and I had a student basically in a full lecture room ask, how could you kill somebody and get away with it? And they weren't asking just as part of the process of the class. I think they were genuinely asking the question as to how you could kill somebody and you, get you, away with it. You think there was some deviancy behind it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think that it, it helped when during that time, you had Jack Trawick, who had someone who was basically putting stuff on the internet or on the dark web or where 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 you had it, saying uh, this is a way to kill somebody and get away with it. And here's the steps to do it. And you know, who knows? It only takes one person to click on be, that. Was that before that. or after he was convicted? That was that, while he was, was convicted. Really? He had somebody. He that. had somebody. Oh, yeah, he crazy. had somebody that was basically putting the information online for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, also, you know, same it, with J- Joseph Duncan as well. Had a yeah. had a blog for. A well, bit. he still does. Yeah. Uh, a, a woman I know interviewed him, and it, it, her letters and stuff ended up on his website. And it's basically pedophiles running a blog for him. Yeah. Normalizing pedophilia. Yeah, and I mean that stuff is available to these people who, uh, like James says, there's there's some deviancy behind them and and what they're trying to gather the information for I, I guess i should say well it's absolutely amazing what people do will do to become famous you know uh or get that one slice of notoriety that 10 minutes of fame i think that's more evident these days right uh, especially i think it's more prevalent especially with the mass shootings and school shootings because look at tj lane and uh what's that kid's name the parkland shooting uh nicholas cruz he made that video and the media stupidly published it and i'm sure that there's going to be thousands well it's a social media it's a social media age uh right but to release something of this guy that killed 20 something kids you know as as a diary people other people that are you know mentally unstable like he was or whatever going to be like maybe this is my calling in life is to break this record or you know to cleanse the school of bullies or whatever like whatever these kids think the how do you feel about that james do you feel like they're they're encouraging each other in that in that sense oh they're feeding the monster yeah Uh, and and you know as as society as a whole united states the whole world we're not giving the attention that is needed to this type of shooter this type of killer 
when you historically go and look at research done on mass shooters, school shooters, it's small in context of mass murder and serial killing. But this is the most prevalent problem that we're seeing now. So why aren't we spending money to do the research? Why aren't we investing funds to try to find out this problem? And, and we know that we're never going to solve the problem. Right. You know, there's going to be someone, you know, always tell the class, there's someone right now that we don't know about who's sitting around the table with eight corpses eating supper every night and talking to them. We just haven't found that person yet. But we, as a society, need to take the stance to learn about these people. Because anyone, especially with these school shooters, or, or just these uh, shooters in general, can be a victim at any given time. You know, going to the, the bus station, going to the mall, going to church. Right. That's supposed to be the safest place that you can go. And, uh, you know, I've talked to uh, people around the South and uh, various pastors and more churches now actually have armed guards or armed con uh, members of the congregation sitting in church right. who, you know, are fully licensed to carry because of that situation. And it's really sad that we come to that. So sad. But I really think that until we make the effort and take the time to study these killers or these school shooters, we're not going to find uh, the answer. You know, look, just, just when you get a chance, go and Google the amount of academic-based research on these shooters. And I'm telling you, it's almost nil compared to the mass murderers and serial killers. Right. But that's the prevalent problem. And uh, because no one, you know, Generally, when it involves school shootings, that's the worst thing that we can think about. No mm. one wants to think about somebody going in and, and shooting up a school. That's horrible. You know, we've Let seen how, uh, exactly. We've seen how President Obama reacted when that happened. Right. He was genuinely tore up over that, as many you know, millions and millions of Americans. And that right there should show that we need to put the time and effort for that. I'm sorry, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. I was rambling, but no, 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 no. The topic. The topic that. Quarter, sort of been dismissed, you know? Yeah, yeah. But going on, I mean, you've obviously been doing this for a long time, and we see those changes. Now, it changes in technology and how we profile and find these people. So let me ask you, how do you feel about things that are coming more to the forefront, like geographical profiling and algorithms, things such as the Murder Accountability Project that are um, using technology to find areas of interest where there is a high probability for serial uh, killer activity or, um, or you know, geographical profiling, uh, finding the, you know, the common denominator between the locations to find an anchor point. How do you feel about this new technology being used? I'm in favor of new technology being used. I think they actually used that. Uh, the uh, professor, doctor that was involved with the, I think, Tara Grinstead case. Uh, you know, they were Do sort of used. That Dr. Then. Maurice Godwin. Yeah, I've actually yes. worked with him before yeah. on, a, on a profile years ago when it comes to geographical profiling as well as psychological. But he is absolutely fucking brilliant. Uh, his his success rate is unbelievable. Um, I actually was speaking with him a couple days ago. So, uh, but yeah, that's um, I I got into that through him years ago, um, and and it blew me away how accurate uh, geographical profiling is as a tool if you know how to use it correctly. Um, that's why I'm curious how someone you know who's who's been doing this for so long, how you would feel about these these new paths to you know investigating and and trying to use these new outlets to to figure out who these people are where they are etc and build on these cases like i said i'm in favor of it and with
with Dr. Godwin, that's when it just sort of hit home with me with that case that he worked on. And he's, like you said, he's worked on many cases. And I was like, this could be the answer. This is the key to the future right here. That if you take the time and the resources and put the money behind it and start training the officers, because generally, you know, most small town jurisdictions and even, you know, um, urban area, the police officers aren't trained to deal with uh, mass murderers, serial killings, mass right. shootings, uh, school shooters, things like that. And, you know, when you get into those jurisdictional ties, a lot of times you get people stepping on each other's toes. You know, um, Dr. Steve Agri years ago came up with a term called linkage blindness, which was the inability for law enforcement agencies to share information. Uh -huh. And that happens so often to this day. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, sometimes local jurisdictions are afraid of the big guys, the FBI coming in and taking right. the case. <laughs> and uh, that happens more than we think. And you would think that the ultimate goal is to find the killer, the murderer, and bring them to justice, uh, get closure for these families. But that's not always the case. So anything in the realm of technology based or trying to improve the science as we know it, I'm all in favor of. Yeah, Absolutely. I know. I know people are pushing more um, more recently for better use of databases as well and national databases. Uh, that's been a problem. Also. Think about it. Vicap was the only thing that they had years ago. Right. And, you know, you had to go through the FBI to use it. And that was the only thing that you can use. Every jurisdiction should have their own database that when there's targets that hit up, you know, because that's why you got these truck drivers who are serial killers. That's why you got these carnival workers who are serial killers. I just read in the paper yesterday, there's a guy that's uh, what, from Virginia who's in the traveling carnival who basically is responsible for two or three deaths now. You know, that's something I cover in class. When we talk about serial murders, think of truck drivers, think of carnival workers, think of carnies, think of construction workers. I, I remember I remember Tommy Lincell saying one time that he was so successful because he said all I had to do was be somewhere else. If they didn't know you're there, they don't know how to who they're looking for. And also think of the military. Yeah. From place to place to place. And that's four types right there that people don't even think of. They take for granted. How many times during the day when you're on the highway do you pass a truck driver? Now that's not oh, to say for truck drivers, a serial murder, serial killer. I'm not saying that by any means. But it's easy for them to be from place to place to place. You know, there was a guy here in Birmingham that was killing in truck drops, and then he ended up getting arrested in Nashville, and now he's in the Tennessee Department of Corrections. But, you know, there's no telling how many people, uh, just like Jeff's person, who are involved with murders that we don't know about, and they're right. going to keep their mouth shut. Yeah. Um, so you've spoken to a lot of serial killers, and, and, and you've had the opportunity to speak to several that were before the time of, of Andrew and I. Can you go over some of the more deviant ones that stand out to you, be it their, their personality or their case? I mean, who who really stands out to you that, that you've interacted with and why? Well, probably, you know, of course, John would be by far one of the most deviant. Jack Trawick was pretty bad. You know, Jack would write detailed letters about his conquest and murders here in Birmingham. And I've got a couple of them. I share them with class where he talks about uh, killing a lady over in uh, the east side of town who got, you know, sort of uh, removed from her church group. They were going around door to door and passing out flyers to come to church. And, you know, he talks about killing her. And everything that he talked about was deviant in nature as far as the crimes, what he liked to do, mutilations. I used uh, to have some of those letters like that incredibly detailed. Yeah, I was going to oh, say, yeah. I, have, I have a few of those, especially the... He, Every single envelope, I think it's like 
big bottom bitches or something like that. He would always just have to write some weird yeah, shit uh, just to. He, he was like the Jablonski at Alabama. <laughs> yes, uh, fat bottom uh, girls make the yep. world go round. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, human sacrifice is the cornerstone of civilization. Yeah, that's what he would used to put on the. I, I mean, it, I mean, they were so detailed. He would talk about the the death spasms, the death rattles, the <laughs> oh, you yeah. know everything, and in, in such incredible detail. And and it's even even reading it, you're you feel way too close to the the what he's describing. Oh, absolutely. And you know, uh, then again, I have to bring up David Gore. He was the same way. He would go into detail. Uh, you know, he used to he used to write in his letters almost the way Jablonski does now as far as the details about the killings and the way he enjoyed it, the way he picked them up and what he would do. And um, a lot of times you find it with the lesser known serial killers, they're more willing to talk about their cases. Years ago, Roy Norris used to talk about the case openly. And, you know, he really doesn't do, do so much anymore. Gacy, of course, would not, you know, talk about it. He would sort of... Hint at it. Out. Yeah, and, and, and you know, uh, you know, I'm I'm not responsible for that that murder. I'm not responsible for this murder. I knew knowledge of this murder. Yeah, and, that's what we've heard. He would do everything, but you know, say it outright. Yeah, exactly. He liked to go around the issue uh, because he didn't want to be backed up into a corner. And you know, that's even uh, I found that out early on, even with my first visit with him. And uh, always, people always ask me, like, how did you become interested? in this case and what, what caused it. And, uh, you know, uh, this is really hard for people to believe, but, uh, I was eight years old when Gacy was arrested. I can remember it just like it was yesterday because I was sitting in the front room with my dad and I grew up in Southeast Missouri in the Booth Hill. And, uh, we were watching the local affiliate because, you know, we bordered Illinois and I remember seeing on the television the day he was arrested. You know, the black leather coat and being drug out in the, yep. the hang. And I <laughs> yeah. remember looking at my dad and I was like, what, dad, what's, what's going on? And uh, he was like, uh, you know, my dad didn't know how to answer. I was eight years old. You know, he wanted to try to find the right answer. And he says, son, there's just some really bad people in this world. And, uh, you know, that, that case sort of stuck with me through high school and even college. And then it happened whenever... WGN put the miniseries to catch a killer with Brian Denny playing John Gacy. Right. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I was in Kentucky working on my undergraduate degree, sitting there watching that. And the, the case just sort of captivated me. I started, you know, just, I couldn't turn away from it. So I think it was a two night series and I watched it. And at the end of the series, WGN did a special on Gacy that night. And I'm sitting there looking at it. And what I did was I had, I was taping, the uh, series and I was taping the after special and I taped it and I stopped it and they showed a letter and it had his mailing address on it and I said you know why not let me give this guy you know let me let me reach out to this guy and took the address down what could go wrote, wrong yeah wrote a letter <laughs> to and literally within a week's time got a response back James Sparks thank you for writing me since you know so much about my case uh, and so you're such the expert um, there's so much more that you don't know about. Why don't you uh, take the opportunity to come visit me and I can show you this? And I was like, man, you know, I debated back and forth. Do I want to do this? And I was like, you know, how many people get this opportunity? Yeah. So what I did was because I was in school, I, I made a phone call to the Department of Correction in Illinois. I wanted to make sure there was no problems with me visiting. You know, uh, the only issue was that 
I was not allowed to tape record or videotape any of the, the business. So we set up a time. I don't even think I filled out a pre-visiting form. I know now whenever you visit in, they should have to fill out these long detailed forms and yeah. stuff like that. At that time, I just showed up at Menard at uh, in Chester, Illinois, went through the metal detector. They asked me who I was there to see. They took my license, basically, you know, search you down, and I waited. And guys was like, are you here to say? I said, John Gates. And he goes, okay. And, you know, it was just like, you know, just wait there and we'll take you around. And uh, and I don't know if you want me to get into the first visit, which is the one that's uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the, the most interesting is I remember getting there and um, they were having, it was Friday. So I think there was a religious ceremony going on. So I had to wait a little while because I think the, uh, the Muslims were having their service. So eventually I get taken around to what's known as death row. And I had to go up these stairs. And I'm looking uh, at this guard section, and uh, I see this steel door, and um, they're like, you're going to need to sign in. So there's this big old ledger book, something like you see at uh, Universal Studios, you know, like in Harry Potter Land, where the, the, the L's are or whatever, and you have to sign on the bank books or whatever. There's one yeah. of those, and then you have to sign in. And um, I'm looking at this, you know, jail door, and I just see this room, and I can see, like, Four on one side, four on the other, just the doorways. And uh, there's this little obnoxious man yelling and cursing at the guards, uh, talking about being mistreated. And, you know, you've messed up my visit. You've done this. You've done that. And the guy looks at me and goes, that's the guy you're fixing to see. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And you By, know, all, by all accounts, he was incredibly obnoxious. Oh, absolutely. So I'm looking and I was like, I remember seeing Brian Dennehy. Brian Dennehy's six foot four, you know, a big dude. And there's this five foot eight round mass yelling. And I was like, that's not what I signed up for, you know. And, you know, it's kind of relieved because it wasn't a six foot four guy. Right. Uh, but I go in there and uh, John's standing in the doorway and I introduce myself and uh, he sticks his hands out and he's got his handcuffs on and we shake hands. And we go in the visiting room and we set up this old, you know, 1960s, early 70s for mica countertop, you know, the, the kitchens that everyone had in the 70s yep. with a, a Cisco vegetable can for an ashtray that had the label tore off. And then there was this fisheye lens in the corner of the room that probably didn't work Yeah. Uh, for visits. And literally, we just sat there and he was shackled up and we sat across the room from each other talking. And... uh we start, you know, going through the introductions and the niceties, if you will, and start talking. And he's got these big books and he's talking about it. And then all of a sudden, um, he looks at me and goes, you know, I've got this information to show you, but I don't know if you want to do this or not. You know, I'm the most notorious inmate in the state of Illinois. And then he goes and he picks up his pencil and he goes, you know, I could take this pencil and stab you in the eye and kill you before they got back here. I was like, oh, really? And I sat and looked at him, and what I did at that point is I was across the table from him, and I got up from the table, I pushed my chair right beside of him, and sat down beside him and said, show me what you got. And when I did that, I called his bluff. Never again did he try to do any of that obnoxious stuff. He just basically sat there and answered my questions. Because, you know, he thought that if he intimidated me, then he would control the whole interview and the whole process, and I refused to let him do that. And and the sad thing about that is over the course of time, over the visits, you know, 12 or 13 visits over the years, it sort of bothered me to see 
or hear about other people that visit him and were just totally, in a sense, subservient to this man who was convicted of killing 33 people. And I remember one, one visit, and a lot of times I would take people with me to help me take notes because I would try to keep the focus on John trying to see if he basically messed up in what he's told me before because I'd always revisit previous questions. And on one visit we got there, and it was a friend of mine from uh, Indiana. And uh, we go through the, you know, the front gate and we go through the process and we see this guy who's following behind us. And the guys knew me at the prison at the time because they'd seen me so much. They go, oh, you're here to see John? Yes, sir. Yeah. And then the guy behind me goes, hey, I'm here to see John Gacy too. And I was like, that's never happened before. So basically I was sharing a visit with another person that I had no idea who it was going to be. And we went in the room and it was just totally sad that this man, I believe, had driven from West Virginia all night to get there, sitting there with us, and he was literally just on the edge waiting to hear every word that Gacy said. It was like Gacy had become a father figure to this guy. And it was probably, it, I couldn't believe it. It was so sad and disturbing at the same time that this man in prison had basically taken control over a grown man who was out on the outside. And it was like he was, like I said, he was just waiting for him to say the next thing. Yeah. And John said, hey, I hope you don't mind that he came with you, but, you know, this guy's a good guy and he wouldn't come see me. Um, but it was like during the course of the discussion, everything was geared towards him because he knew that he could control that guy. And he would do that from time to time. Uh, one time he tried to uh, grab my friend on his ass when we were taking photos at the end of the visits. He would always love for people to come in the doorway because there would be other visitors seeing other inmates. And when they found out John Wayne Gacy was in the visiting room, they would come to the door we were visiting and say, hey, can I get a photo with you? He loved it. Sure, yeah. sure. He would sit there and take a Polaroid and sign it for them. Yeah. And they would just go across the room to the next one. Uh, you know, one of the, I guess, things that is stands out about the visits, and this was toward the end with John. And, you know, the thing about John is every visit, some way he tried to relay the interview back to his deviant sex. That's what he always wanted to talk about. I said, John, you know, I'm not gay. Whatever you do is fine. I'm cool with that. But, I, I you know, I really don't, uh, you know, that's not my thing. But he always tried to bring it up and talk about how many people he'd slept with and all like this. And we were sitting there uh, one day, and we were talking about the Cubs. We were talking about baseball games. And um, he was a Cubs fan. I was a Cardinals fan, being from Missouri. So, you know, I was rooting for the Cardinals. We're sitting there talking, a baseball conversation. And then out of the blue, he sort of looks like he's rocking. And he goes, if I had two more weeks. I look at him, it's like, what do you mean two more weeks? Baseball season's over, man. We've been talking about how it's been over. We're talking about next season. I had two more weeks. And I'm just looking at him, and the guy with me looks at him. And uh, then out of the blue, he said, I ordered 40 yards of concrete. I was going to fill in the crawl space. And then just like that, he went out of it, started talking about baseball again. I was like, oh, my Lord, we just seen something. I don't know if it was psychotic. If it was intentional, what just happened? But he basically owned up. I yeah, I I heard that his sexual deviancy was rather compulsive, and it was always, I mean, always prevalent. Um, and and he was obsessed with it, and then of course, in intertwined with his his sexuality is that violence, and um, yeah, I mean, I I've never heard it in regards 
directly to the crime. That's the first time I've ever heard any mention of that. But knowing other people that knew him, he was always very, very openly, um, I I mean, just obsessed with with sex. And, and, And it was always a thing and he was always making reference and... Do you feel that that was a, a compulsive behavior for him? Oh, absolutely. You know, and he, he didn't even restrain it whenever on occasion I would take some of my female friends with me. And, you know, he, he would not just, he would go full force then, start talking about it and just, you know, try to embarrass them. And he used to talk about something he liked to do called head over head. And I talk about this in class with the students. And they're like, what is it? And he would talk about, well, this is something I enjoy doing in myself. He said that he used to like to lay on his back and hitch himself up so he could masturbate and ejaculate on his face, his own face. Yeah. And then he said, you know, all the time that he would take and he would masturbate in a shot glass and just drink it back. It would be things like that. I don't know if it was shock or what, but he was always obsessed with it, specifically, you know, the gay sex. Right. He loved talking about that. And, you know, he always said nothing below the belt. You know, there's no there's no kissing involved. And he always used to say, I'm always a pitcher, not a catcher. That's yeah. what he would always say during the process. But, yeah, that it somehow, you know, we could be talking about politics and it would always end up him talking about the sex. Try to talk about Robert Feast one night. And then, you know, he starts jumbling up with that. And he says, well, well, I'm aware of it. And he did tell me, he says, you know, the night Kozenzak came to my door. He said, Rob Peace was in my attic. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, uh, had Kozenzak had a search warrant that night. He said, well, I would have been arrested then. And then you start probing for details, and he sort of just, you know, skirts his way around the issue. When yeah. it came into talking about specifics, he would always blame other people that worked for him. You know, one time we were basically playing good cop, bad cop, a guy I had with me, and we were asking him questions. And, uh, we got him so rattled about the cases that he started calling my buddy a name of one of the victims he had killed. And I was like, man. And I, when we got out, I told the guys, like, did you realize what he's doing? He goes, yeah, he was calling me names of people he killed. I said, exactly. That's what he did. So it was almost, you know, was there some mental health issues? Was he crazy? I, and I asked my students that. I was like, what do you think about Gacy? Do you think he was crazy? Personally, I think John loved what he was doing. I think he loved to kill. He enjoyed it. You know, after that first killing, he enjoyed what he did. He knew he could get away with it because he searched out people that wouldn't be missed. Right. You know, uh, the less dead is what they're often referred to. Yeah, as. absolutely. And uh, But then again, when you think of it on the other hand, how can someone who's saying sleep in a house with almost 30 bodies underneath? You know, most people get get cringe when they have to go to a funeral. Or, you know, when they have to go around a funeral home. Right, yeah. And this guy did it every day. Do you think that there is anything paraphilic uh, in that he kept the bodies there? Something knowing that, do you think that was part of a a paraphilia? Or he got some excitement sexually from it? Anything like that? Or Well, Chris, keep in mind, uh, he had all his trophies with him. He kept them with him the entire time. So when he was, do you think that that was just a signature, something for psychological gratification? Oh, absolutely. The control and knowing that he that he still maintained control, and the fact that he still had control over what was going on with the police investigation, everything else, he called the shots. 
he yeah. was the one who decided what was going on. Uh, you know, and then he gets like most of them do. He gets tired. He gets lazy. He makes mistakes. And guess what happens? But, you know, yeah, those his trophies never left him. They always stayed with him. The only time that he realized he couldn't keep all his trophies when the cross space filled up. And believe me, that house was so close to his neighbor's house. It's beyond me how people, even during that time, didn't do something or say something or, you know, ask more questions. Because from my understanding, talking to people who were involved in the case, who actually worked the case, the stench when you opened up that door was unbelievable. Really? There's no way. And, you know, that's another thing with serial killers. A lot of times they tend to lose almost uh, realm of senses, hearing, smell, taste. Uh, and they can't smell that. You know, they can't taste. They can't hear things. And that happens quite a bit. But Gacy, yeah, he said it was just like walking into a morgue. And Gacy wasn't even aware of it. But, you know, that, that control was the main thing that he loved. He used to get on TV whenever, after he was arrested, and talk about that one mother, you know, said, I wish you would take 33 volumes and, volumes and shut up. He, he could care less about the damage that he inflicted on all those people. Because it's not just 33 people. Think about how many loved ones that those people had. And think about all the people that worked that case. Think about the police officers that it affected, the the defense attorneys, the prosecuting attorneys. You know, I believe wasn't there one police officer that ended up having a heart attack because of that case and died? I think so. They, yeah. called, him, they called him like the 34th victim of John's. But John, up until the end, had, you know, it was the first time in my life that I met someone uh, sitting down with them, and it was obvious and apparent that they had no respect for human life whatsoever. Right. And that's a scary thing, man. That yeah. Is scary. Yeah. I, I mean, that? you've spoken to a lot of them, you as well as myself and Andrew. Um, we all know that they are how they are. I mean, sometimes there's some legal maneuvering. Uh, sometimes they're variously different <laughs> in, in how they present themselves in regards to their case. But Gacy, I think it was always just this game to him that he never took seriously and, and no value in it whatsoever. And and, and it wasn't a case of, you know, he was, he was trying to play play innocent and maneuver his way off death row or anything like that. He genuinely didn't give one fraction of a shit about any of it. It was just a giant joke to him. It was all a game to him. It yeah. Was, uh, and the one thing about it is I realize it more as I get older. And uh, my mom always used to say garbage in, garbage out. And that's so true uh, because during the course of visiting him, it almost, in a sense, desensitized me to things that were going on, like horrible tragedies. And I was like, oh, whatever. You know, it's just another killing or whatever. And I literally had to remove myself. I remember taking a semester of, like, fun classes, you know, and I call them, like, juvenile justice classes and stuff like yeah. that. Most people would think they were fun. But that's what I did to sort of get myself back where I needed to be because being exposed to that man and talking to that man it was unbelievable just by the just by the sheer audacity, the way he felt towards people and thought, you know, he, he really thought that he, he was going to get away with it. He, oh, yeah. He thought that he didn't think that he was going to be executed. Yeah. And, you know, there's a thing about it that, that really the state of Illinois almost messed up because prior to his execution, they were trying to file 
cases and lawsuits to charge him rent for being on death row for the 14 years. Have you ever heard of the Department <laughs> of Corrections trying to charge an inmate? And John, John was telling me, he goes, yep. And I'd seen the form where they had filed it. And I was like, he's like, let him go on. He goes, because guess what? I can appeal every year that I've been on death row. I've been here 14. That'll give me 14 more years. And by that time, that death penalty will probably be abolished. And had he been charged, guess what? He would have made it. He yeah. was right. would have made yeah. it. Because you know yeah. what's the status of the state of Illinois right now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's gone. You know what's funny about that is I guess you can compare what they were trying to do to him to today. If you think about it, uh, California, Washington, Alabama, Florida, they <clears throat> all charge restitution for inmates. And a lot of inmates claim that they're charged yearly to be there and they tack on a certain interest and percentage. Like I know one guy, he owes like twenty five thousand uh, dollars, and he gets maybe twenty five percent of the money that's sent to him. So if you send him a hundred bucks, he's gonna get twenty five dollars, which is kind of a funny way to look at things. But it does cost money to keep them in prison. I mean, people say everything is free, but it's really not because we're paying for it as taxpayers. And oh, if you think about it, they can pay inmates and legally get away with it for like nine cents an hour in there because. Oh, yeah. They're paying to house them, feed them, clothe them, keep them safe. And, you know, we uh, we executed a fellow last night here in the state. So uh, Right, and I saw Tennessee executed one a few days ago, and his it was strange. His last meal request was to get meals to the homeless people in Nashville or somewhere around Tennessee, which <laughs> it, it, yeah. was kind of, it was kind of like a shock to read as a headline. That yeah. was like, I got to fact check this, and it was, it was real, so... Yeah, it's uh, it, it's still ongoing, especially in southern states. Uh, but you know, then towards the end, you know, I'll, I'll wrap up with Gacy. The last visit, it was just May. Went up to see him. It was April first of '94, uh, so you know, a month and two days prior to his executed. And we just sat there and sort of talked. He had a, a painting of Pennywise that he wanted me to uh, mail out for him, so I did that. Basically, talked about what the case status was. He wasn't right. You know, and I and he was never right, but you know what I'm saying? Something yeah. you could tell was bothering him. And, uh, you know, he said, it looks like they're going to do this thing. And I was like, yeah, John, this is going to happen. They're going to execute you. And he says, well, you know, I've enjoyed the time that you come see me. I hope we've both learned something, you know, basically wished me well for, you know, future years. Um, and then, you know, he asked if I wanted to come to the execution. And I, I said, John, I really have no interest in coming to see you die, you know, given the opportunity now. I don't know. I may have had a different yeah. answer now oh, being God. older. But uh, at that time, you know, I said no. And then we spoke, I believe it was April 10th uh, was the last time we spoke. And then basically, you know, sort of the sort, same sort of thing. Hey, wish you well. Really enjoy the time you visit with me and so forth. But he never would really open up about the case. And what was so frustrating as being a researcher and writing a paper, writing a master's thesis on it, was that I was pretty much turned down confession statements and everything else that I needed because had I had that confession statement, I would have went to a visit and said, you said this, you said that. And I literally had to go through the Freedom of Information Act after he was executed before I could get a copy of the confession statement. So you know, after after he was executed and you had that and and now that you have your your research and you had the ability to compare everything, what did you find? That's what he told of course, was a complete lie. You know, what he talked about in the prison system, which we know, you know, 
someone who basically goes and confesses everything that he did to these police officers, to the Des Plaines police officers at the time, and it's documented. And then it was like, while he was in prison, he forgot all that that happened. It was almost like, uh, you know, the ending of the Bob Newhart show or the end of the, the <laughs> series Dallas, you know? Yeah. It, it never happened. <laughs> never break. happened. That, that's, that's the way, you know, he uh, set it up when he was in prison. He was this fun-loving guy, you know, who who does these paintings, who... O- operated a, a cemetery and, without a license in his words. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But he, he didn't think that he did anything wrong. Which was sad, you know, and it's sad for all the victims because some of those people are still suffering, you know, some yeah. of those family members. Oh, it's it's ongoing. I mean, with the 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 collateral damage and the the devastation, it's it's going to be ongoing for for quite some time. And you know, families got to pass that dark piece of uh, of history down their their line, and and you know, it's 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 going to be there. Um, yeah, I think I think he had a total disconnect. I think people today that weren't around when, when John Gacy was at the, I hate to say it, but the hide was, you know, his popularity yeah. and the serial killer infamy and all that was going on. Um, they don't realize how fucking bad he was. He was horrible. And he, you know, he loved the notoriety. He loved being number one. Cause think about it. Really? He was the reigning champ in quotes. Until Ridgeway came along. Right, yeah. As far as documented kills in one location or what have you. Yeah. And I remember one time asking John on the news, I was like, what do you think about Jeffrey Dahmer? Well, I, I don't think about Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, uh, I'm not in, I'm, I, don't, I don't like being in the serial killer club. I don't want to be compared to him. Did you ever well, ask about Coral since he was a copycat of Coral and he's alluded to that? If not- yeah, we talked about Dean Coral in the case and, uh, he basically tried to lay off the victims that were found on his location to uh, people that worked for him, that, uh, you know, they were involved uh, very similar to the, he used to call it Wayne Henley cases, what he would call it. He really wouldn't say the Dean Curl case, he said the right. Wayne Henley case from Houston. And he would talk about that, and then he would go into these long diatribes about NAMBLA. Well, Nambla was involved, you know, the North American Man Boy Love Association. Yeah. They were involved in this and they had something to do with this. But it all leads back to Chicago politics. You would not believe the crazy excuses that he would come up with. The, web, the webs he would weave just to... <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, the sad thing about it, like that one guy mentioned before that came on that visit, that guy believed everything that he said. Yeah. And, you know, the, which is that's that's not uncommon with the general no. public who choose when I have people I, I kid you not multiple times a week get a hold of me and say, hey, um, what should I I want to I want to get into talking to these murderers and things like that. What what advice do you have? What can I do? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, OK, well, if you have questions, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> you right. know, and, right. and that's that's the, the the general thing that I tell everybody. And well, it's be, funny because. Rick Staten and I always say, and uh, people are always telling Rick and I, well, I want to get into their head. And it's like, you're not going to get in their head. They're going to get in your head and they're going to exactly. fuck you any way possible they can. And they're going to yep, you know, take advantage it of you completely. Like they can and... Because they're in prison, they're locked up, they can't hurt you, but they can get into your mind. And Well, the they, they, all, they all attempt to be manipulative. Some are better than others. I mean, it's, it's all in regards to their intellect and, um, you know, 
they're they're trying to manipulate a situation. They're trying to um, achieve something, um, you know, and, and that's that's so unbelievably common. Some are some are much better at it than others. Um, that's oh, why I say, yeah, intellect plays a role. Definitely. Um, they don't have to be a genius. Uh, you know, Ted Bundy wasn't as smart as people think he was, you know, had an IQ in the one twenties. He was, he was above average intelligence, but by no means was he a fucking genius. He was just very clever and he was very good at making people think he was smarter than he was and things like that. They're very, it, you know, it's, it's the manipulation factor and there are all very, of them have very, it. A lot of, oh, all of them do. James, who was, uh, who would you say were some of the more adept and, and effective ones at manipulation? Oh, goodness. Uh, I would have to say uh, Donald Harvey. He was the master of it. Randy Woodfield. Of course, Gacy. You know, that's a given. What about Nielsen or Brady? You know, Brady loved the attention as well. He loved all the attention that he get, especially from the States. Uh, because when we would correspond, he used to love to brag about telling me how, you know, Marilyn Manson had posters with his face on it at rock concerts or. Uh, and this is know, this is this is I, Ian Brady over in the UK. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, and and just loved talking about how he thought that he was smarter than the system over there. You know, he'd be basically playing the dime for the whole time had manipulated them with the last victim, uh, promising to give his location and never did, and went to his death doing that. You know, there was some some discussion that he had sent something to one of his pen pals that upon his death they would release the the location of, uh, what was it, Keith Duck or whatever the kid's name was. I can't remember. And, you know, that never happens. Uh, but he enjoyed, the, he enjoyed, you know, running the show as well. Dennis Nielsen was more one of those people that believe it or not, I really enjoyed the correspondence with him because it's one of the first times that I was actually corresponding with someone who could correspond back. Right. And it's not like, you know, uh, corresponding with a grapefruit, you know, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> it was actually, which, which oftentimes that's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, corresponding with Pat Kearney is the same way. It's just, you yep. know, I get yep. these mathematical equations oh, back yeah. from him and everything else. He speaks and, fluent French and yes. all this. You know, I mean, he's, languages, doesn't he? Yeah, he's an interesting uh, yeah. guy. Yeah, he sent me the other day a letter where he transcribed the thing about, he said, well, Sakawa, the uh, recording, uh, the new movie out about him, and he wrote it in French for me and then transcribed it for me. But, you know, he's super intelligent. But Nielsen, back to Nielsen, you know, it was just more like he really didn't want to talk about the crimes or his case. He would mention them every once in a while, but he was more interested in world politics. He was more interested in how he felt like the Muslim Brotherhood was taking over the prison system. He was more interested in why they were taking away his smoking privileges. You know, yeah. that's the sort of things that it was almost like uh, you corresponding with a, a uncle that lived across the United <laughs> States, you know. And he's talking to you or trying to give you advice. Now, yeah. now he wouldn't give advice, but he would talk about things uh, that he felt were important to him, especially uh, gay rights. Uh, did he ever talk about prison. Jeffrey Dahmer? He would not, not in any of our correspondence did he ever mention Dahmer's name. That's interesting. Uh, he would talk about religion quite a bit. He would talk about being an atheist. One of the, I guess it was the next to last letter I got from him before he passed away. 
he mentioned about being interviewed by a psychiatrist because apparently in the UK prison system, even though he was classified, he still had to see a therapist or a psychiatrist every year. Yeah. And he basically was tested. And I think on the last one, he said uh, that the, the therapist says, how can you not have nightmares for what you did? He goes, uh, we need to get an understanding right now. He says, I'm the one who causes nightmares. And uh, basically, I was like, whew, that's, yeah. <laughs> that says it all. Yeah. Because uh, he knew what he did. You know, he, he would he would briefly mention a victim, but it wasn't to the extent. It was almost very similar to Gacy. He didn't want to talk about what it was. And, you know, we know that somewhere History of a Drowning Boy is out there. Somebody owns a copy of it that at some point is going to be published. And we know that that is a detailed ledger of case by case, blow by blow of his crime. It's just when we actually lay eyes on it. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, that's the question. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was very, you know, it, it was, it was good to, to get a letter from him because at least I knew that he was in tune with what was going on right now. Um, you know, not so much fans of the, uh, political status of the United States that we've got going on right now. And he would always, I guess, poke fun at me because I would send him articles and clippings about what was going on in the South. He's like, yeah, South's always behind everyone else. I was like, yeah, this, this is actually proving it. I live in Florida. I can, uh, okay. I can 100% vouch for that. And you so, talked to you him know, like right before he died, right? Up until he died? Well, we corresponded right until he died, yeah. Uh, I got a letter from him about uh, three weeks before he died. And another guy that we all know on Facebook, we actually had a conversation one day about Dennis or Dez, as we like to be referred to. And uh, we're sitting there talking about him. We're talking about some of the things that we talk about him in our correspondence. And literally, the guy and I are talking. And the next thing I know, he messaged me and he says, you're not going to believe this. Dez is dead. And it was just, you know, completely out of the blue. We, we were talking about this guy. And, you know, this guy was one of those ones who sent Christmas cards every year. Um, you know, when my father passed away, he sent me a letter, you know, condolences. It was a really nice letter. He liked talking about his uh, time in the military. He said because that was one of the few times that he felt like he was connected with someone. He said he felt like that they were truly brothers and they could depend on each other. And it wasn't a sexual thing. He said it was someone that I, you know, these guys I truly cared about and depended on them. So, you know, I guess there is a human side or aspect of it to it as well. But most of the time, you know, in all honesty, these guys are low down dirt bags. Uh, we know that. Uh, and obviously, if you look at his case in the details, you know, that's another one. How much is yeah. it of his mental health? You know, someone who puts bodies under the floorboard and then pries them out and sleeps with them and bathes them, killing for company. What do you expect? Like, yeah. He ate them too, right? Didn't he eat parts of them? He never admitted to doing that, uh, and he would never. And he also uh, was very adamant that he never performed any necrophilic sex. Uh, there was more necrofetishism, where he would sort of uh, not penetrate the anus, but you know, masturbate on the body or rub his penis against him. But he was adamant that he never had anal sex with any of the corpses. Right. Well, that's um, good. He had a he had a he had a line he went across. <laughs> oh, he yeah, he had morals. He was... <laughs> yeah, he did. There are standards even in the serial killer realm. You know, they they all uh, yeah. have a certain uh, expectation. I guess. <laughs> yeah, believe, believe it or not, I know a lot of people find that hard to believe, but that's very very true. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah yeah. It's uh, there. Like throw my hands up. I don't even want to deal with that. They're they're all they're all sorts of fucked up. But uh, yeah, let's uh, 
let's go ahead and, and, and wrap this up for now. And, um, I, I mean, if, if at some point in the future you get some more time, James, we'd love to have you back on at some point. So, sure. oh yeah, sure. we haven't even covered Luke. Oh, yeah, we, no, yeah, yeah, barely scratched the surface here. And let, let me say one thing though that I found amusing. You guys will get a kick out of this too. And I don't know if you're aware of the story with Lawrence Bittaker when he was being uh, interviewed by one of the uh, more well-known FBI agent profilers, and I'm not going to mm. mention the name for oh. legal reasons, possibly. <laughs> uh, but Bittaker said, you know, this guy really pissed me off. It was like, why did he piss you off? He goes, because the guy came in and says, what did you do to those bitches? How did you treat those bitches? What did those bitches do to you? And he says, the guy offended me. He says, I never call a woman a bitch. He said, this FBI guy offends me by his language. That's like, what? Pot calling kettle black. You had no problem trying to kill a kid from every yeah. age group, what, 12 to 18. Yeah. But an FBI agent who comes in and calls women bitches and basically sets you off. And you don't want to talk to him. And I was like, that right there sort of just tells you the mindset of these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, of course, you know, the profiler was just trying to, to gain a level of trust. That's yeah. the basic skills of. That's always what you do. Yeah. He, he was not disrespecting women by any means. He was just trying to get that connection. No, that was a tool. Yeah, it's, you, that you definitely want to try and uh, make them comfortable. And yeah, I, I mean, that's that's very, very basic. But uh yeah, thank you so much for for coming on and doing this with us. Um, I'm at some point, I'm sure we'll have you back on. I'm sure our listeners will try and find us and harm us if we don't. So, uh, <laughs> um, we really appreciate it. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening. Check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Criminal Perspective, and uh, we'll be doing this again very soon. So, uh, again, thank you, James. Oh, you're welcome.